love for Gary and Cindy is to simply worship Christ this morning. And the greatest way that we can encourage our hearts in any type of disappointment is to simply worship Christ this morning. And the greatest way that we can move forward as a church through anything that we might go through is to worship Christ together. So with that in mind, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. And would you stand for the reading of God's Word, Genesis chapter 16, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table and as we seek to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 16 reads as follows. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. And maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of God. Please be seated. This morning's message is the product of two passions that the Lord has been placing upon my heart these last number of weeks. And the first passion is this, is just the simple desire to see Christ. The simple desire to see Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Pastor James spoke on this from last week, from Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. How we are to run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of faith. That the key to the Christian life, the key to running the race that is before us, is not mere willpower, it's not mere determination, it's not more commitment, it is looking to Jesus. It is seeing things that are beautiful about Jesus as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. That is what sustains our hearts in the race that is before us. That is what gives us endurance, is when we taste of and as we savor the beauty and the sweetness of Jesus Christ. My heart's prayer has been that, that we be more, more aware of, of the beauty of Jesus Christ than we are aware of our failures. My, my prayer has been that we be more aware of the beauty of Christ than we are of our sins. 
My prayer has been that we'd be more aware of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ than we are of our insufficiency and our weakness, and that we'd be more aware of Christ's beauty than we are of our problems and our trials. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire for you this morning is that you look at Jesus, that you see Jesus Christ. My heart heart is that I need to see Jesus if I'm going to run this race with endurance that is set before us. That's the first passion that the Lord has placed upon my heart. The second passion is to see Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a story about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. It anticipates Jesus. It pictures Jesus. The Old Testament finds its culmination and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the whole Old Testament is about, it is about this simple subject. It is about Jesus Christ. And if we have missed Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, we have missed the point of why it was written. If you can read Genesis, or if you can read Numbers, or if you can read Ezekiel, or if you can read Jeremiah, and you miss Jesus, you've missed the point. The Old Testament is a book, is a story about Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5.39, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Luke chapter 24, Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus' simple message to his disciples is, guys, the Old Testament is about me. The reason why these books are written is to point to me. If you've missed me in the Old Testament, you've missed the point of the books. The entirety of the Old Testament and also the New Testament form one unified story of salvation, and it is a story which finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And many Christians ask the question, Dan, why don't I love Jesus more? They ask the question, why why is my heart so cold to Jesus? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just a bad Christian. Maybe I'm just not an affectionate person. I don't love Jesus the way that I ought to. And my response is, brothers and sisters, have you seen Jesus as he is revealed in all the scriptures? Have you seen Jesus as as he's revealed in the whole story? Have you read the whole story from Genesis to Revelation? Because if you knew the whole story, I think you would love Jesus. Uh, Trying to love Jesus uh, just by picking out certain portions of the New Testament is is like watching 15 minutes of the third movie of Star Wars. Imagine you just watched 15 minutes of Star Wars 3, Return of the Jedi. You just watch a little snippet you go, what's this movie about? I don't know why people love this so much. It's just about these bunch of Ewoks. <laughs> these little furry guys that run around and they don't speak English. I don't even understand what they're saying. And people love Star Wars. Why do they love it so much? Ah, it's just not my thing. I must have a bad heart. I must just not love this, this, this thing. And my, my response is, reading the Bible is like that. That... That no, you have to watch all of Star Wars, from Star Wars 1, Star Wars 2, Star Wars 2. You have to see the unified storyline that works through the whole thing, and then you'll love Return of the Jedi. In the same way with the Bible. You have to read the whole story. You have to know the whole story. It's like, reading, for, for this generation, it's like reading Harry Potter 7 and not reading Harry Potter's 1 to 6. 1 to 6. Why do people love this story so much? I actually did this. I went to a bookstore, and I've never read Harry Potter. I don't know what is it about, but someone told me that the ending was really good. 
So I had 10 minutes in a bookstore. I read the ending of Harry Potter 7. And it didn't move me. You know, my heart was like, I don't get it. Why do people love this so much? Why do they say this is the best, best uh, climax of the decade? Um, and, and people will tell me, you haven't read the whole story. Unless you've read the whole story, that's when you'll see that it's exciting and beautiful. And in a similar way, my passion is that we see Jesus as he's revealed in all the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And so this morning, I want to come to you this morning, and I want to share with you one of my favorite pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It is a beautiful picture. I trust it will fire up your affections for Jesus Christ. I trust it will help you to love him more. I, I trust it will help you to see that he is more beautiful than anything else that is in this life. He is more beautiful than our relationships, than our possessions, than our homes, than our education, than our careers. He is more beautiful and he is, more, he is better than anything else that is going on in your life right now. I trust that this, this picture will help you to see that. And we are introduced to this picture in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 is a story of a woman named Hagar. It is a story of an Egyptian servant of Abram and Sarai. And you'll recognize those names, Abram and Sarai, from, from their new names, Abraham and Sarah. This is before they had their new names. And Abram's wife, Sarai, had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, and this is her story. Now, to set the context here, God had made Abraham a promise back in Genesis chapter 12. The promise was that God would multiply Abraham into a great nation. Genesis 12:3, God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Genesis 15:5, God said to Abraham, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham, I'm going to multiply your descendants. And you won't even be able to count them. They'll be so great. That was God's promise to Abraham. And God so wanted Abraham to remember this promise that he gave him a new name. His new name was to be Abraham. Abraham, the name means father of a multitude. So that whenever Abraham would even hear his wife say his name, he would remember the promise that God had made to him. He would remember that God has promised to make me into a great nation. And God is going to be faithful to this promise. Well, there's only one problem with that, right? Abraham has no children. Sarai is barren. They have no child, and they're growing up in years. How is God going to multiply his descendants into a great nation when he doesn't even have one child that is of his own? And so in chapter 16, verse 1, it says that now Sarai, Abraham, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Now Abraham, he believed God and believed the promise of God and yet we see in this chapter that his faith falters. His faith becomes weak. And what he does is he foolishly tries to fulfill the terms of the promise in his own strength, in his own ingenuity. And Sarai gives to him her servant, Hagar, and he has relations with Hagar, and Hagar becomes pregnant with child. And Abraham hopes that it is through Hagar's child who's being formed in her womb, that the promise will be fulfilled. Well, we know from the rest of Scripture that the child being formed in Hagar's womb will not be the child of promise. God will actually give a miraculous birth to Sarah, and she will give birth to Isaac, and Isaac will be the child of promise. And yet, as we pick up this story, Hagar is pregnant with child. 
and she is pregnant. Uh, the father of this child is Abraham. Now, I gave you all that background, but what I want you to do at this point is to zero in on Hagar because we want to follow her story, the story of this Egyptian servant. Verse 4, when she had saw she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Friction begins to develop between Hagar and Sarai. Verse 6, then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. And verse 7 tells us that Hagar fled to the wilderness. And at this point in the story, what we have is this sad, sad picture. It is the saddest picture that you could ever conceive. A woman who is pregnant with child, who runs from the only home that she has ever known, who runs from the only support she has ever known, who runs from all her relationships, who has no friends, who has nowhere to go and nowhere to turn, and she just flees to the wilderness where she's all alone. What is going to happen to Hagar? If there's ever a, a sadder picture of distress, I don't know what it is. This is, a, this is what we, a single mom, a single mom without anyone to provide for her. And Hagar in the wilderness must have thought, I have no future. She must have looked at the baby that was in her womb and thought, this baby has no future. We are going to die here. She had nowhere to turn to. Now at this point in this story, a beautiful figure shows up in the story, verse 7. The arrival of this figure, the arrival of this person, changes the entire course of Hagar's destiny. And this person in verse 7 is called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. And I want you to note his name very carefully. It is not an angel of the Lord, but it is the angel of the Lord. Definite article. And he shows up to Hagar in the wilderness. And the entire story changes. Hagar goes from being hopeless to be given hope. She goes from facing death to be given life. She goes from a place of despair to a place of blessing, all because the angel of the Lord appears to her in the wilderness. Verse 8, The angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now just pause at this story. And let me just ask you this question. Whoever this figure is, the angel of the Lord, whatever his identity might be, would you not agree that this is a, a beautiful person? Would you not agree that his ministry is a beautiful thing? Would you not agree that, that from what we see in his life, that this is a messenger of mercy, that he loves to show up to people who are in times of great distress? He loves to show up to people who feel themselves utterly alone. He loves to show up to people whom it seems that not no one else in this world cares about them, loves them, or notices them. That is where he loves to show up. And when he shows up, the world changes. 
Hagar goes from wondering if her child is going to live. And because the angel of the Lord appears to her, she knows that this child will not only live, but he will become a great nation. This angel of the Lord is a messenger of blessing. This angel of the Lord is a messenger of joy. This angel of the Lord is a messenger of compassion. In verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And she renames the well in the wilderness, Be'er Lahairoi, a beautiful name meaning the well of the living one who sees me. This angel of the Lord, he communicates to this single mother that God knows who you are. God cares about you. God loves you. And God will be with you. He will bless you. Isn't this person a beautiful person? Wouldn't Hagar have looked back on her life and said, I owe everything in my life to the angel of the Lord. Where would I be without the angel of the Lord? If the angel of the Lord had not found me in the wilderness, I would still be lost and hopeless and I would be most likely dead. Wouldn't she look back and say, I am who I am because of the angel of the Lord. Now the term angel in the Hebrew is the word malach. It's similar to the Greek term angelos. It's nonspecific. It does not necessarily refer to a created angel. It may simply refer to a messenger of God. In the New Testament, we find that even human people are called angels in the sense that they are messengers sent by God to other people. We could rename this angel of the Lord the messenger of the Lord or the messenger of Yahweh. We see in this passage that this messenger of the Lord is a minister of mercy. He is sent by the Lord to communicate the heart of the Lord. And the heart of the Lord is a heart of mercy. Now, it's a mystery here. Did you catch it? This messenger of the Lord is distinct from the Lord. We all agree on that. He has to be distinct from the Lord because he is sent by the Lord. He is a messenger of the Lord. And yet the mystery is, in verse 13, he's treated as if he is equal with the Lord. She called the name, verse 13, of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Hagar doesn't say you were sent from a God who sees me. She says to the angel of the Lord, you are a God of seeing. Who is this mysterious figure who is sent by God and yet is treated as if he is God? Well, to further the mystery, let's look at Genesis chapter 22, a second appearance of the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears again in a few chapters over in Genesis chapter 22, and this is the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. This is the story of God calling Abraham as a test of his faith, as a test of his love and devotion to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. At this point in the story, 
Sarah has given birth to Isaac, and Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Abraham, that he would multiply his descendants and make him into a great nation. That promise is going to flow through this child who is Isaac. And so when God sees Isaac, he sees more than, than a son that in a regular way. He sees more than how I look at my sons. I look at my sons and I love my sons. They're my boys. But I don't see, God hasn't promised me, Dan, I'm going to make Jonathan and Benjamin into a great nation. Abraham sees in Isaac, this is the promised seed in whom the blessings will flow. And so he loves Isaac. And and Isaac is the, the validation of Abraham's name. He is what keeps Abraham's name from being a mockery, father of a multitude. And we see in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham's faith. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again. To you. I don't want to get too detailed here. I just want us to note that this is a scene of unimaginable distress. It is a scene of unimaginable sorrow. When I read this passage, I, I see my two boys, and I cannot imagine the pain and the agony that would have gone on in Abraham's heart. That he had heard the voice of the Lord, and the Lord was calling him to put his son to death as a burnt offering. My heart recoils when I read this. And Abraham's heart must have just been weighed down with with unimaginable agony as he goes with Isaac to the place of sacrifice, as he leaves the servants behind. and, And him and his boy are walking to the place where he knows he will put his son to death. The agony in Abraham's heart intensifies as the dialogue. He dialogues with his son in verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. The narrative reaches the climax in verse 9. Here Abraham is alone with his son. He has reached the place of sacrifice. And verse 9 says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And then the text says, He bound Isaac and he placed him on the altar on top of the wood. At this moment, Abraham is the most alone person in the universe. He is a man in 
if there's any man in greater distress, there's no man in greater distress than Abraham at this moment with Isaac on the altar. And verse 10 says that Abraham reached out his hand. Picture it now. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And as Abraham stands ready with knife raised, ready to plunge the knife into his son's body, a mysterious figure shows up out of nowhere. This mysterious figure is the same figure who showed up to Hagar in the wilderness. He is, verse 11, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Whoever this person is, he loves to find people who are in distress. He loves single moms. He loves distressed fathers. He loves people who who have come to the point where they feel they have no hope. And he loves to just show up out of nowhere and to communicate to them that God loves you and God knows you and there is hope and there is blessing. And when this angel of the Lord shows up, everything changes. Everything changes. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And on your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. When this angel of the Lord shows up, Hopelessness turns into joy. Sorrow turns into blessing. Darkness turns into light. And Abraham too, would he not have looked back on his life and said, I owe everything to the angel of the Lord. Where would I be if the angel of the Lord had not stopped my hand from plunging the knife into my son? The angel of the Lord is a messenger of mercy. Again, we notice the great mystery. Did you catch it? The angel of the Lord is sent by the Lord, which means he is distinct from the Lord, and yet he speaks as if he is the Lord. I'll draw to your attention, created angels do not have this misunderstanding. In Revelation 22, when the apostle John 
knelt down at an angel's feet, the angel said to the apostle John, don't do that. I am a fellow servant. Worship God. But this angel of the Lord speaks as if he is the Lord. Verse 16, when the angel of the Lord speaks, he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So wait a second, is it the angel of the Lord talking or is it the Lord? Exactly. He's speaking as if he is the Lord. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. He doesn't say, man, I've been sent by God and and God's going to do this. No, he says, I'm going to do this. Because he is speaking as if he is the Lord. Who is this mysterious figure who is distinct from God and yet speaks as if he is God? Why don't you look at a third passage where the angel of the Lord appears, and that passage is 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And there are a number of instances where the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament. He appears in the darkest times of Israel's history. He appears to Moses when the people of Israel are captive to Egypt and enslaved by Pharaoh. He appears to Gideon when the people of Israel are oppressed by the Midianites and he calls Gideon to rescue God's people from oppression. He appears to Manoah in Judges chapter 13. And he says to Manoah, your barren wife will have a son. That son will be Samson, and Samson will deliver the people of God from the Philistines. He loves to show up when everything looks dark. He loves to show up when there is no hope. He loves to show up when in the bleakest of circumstances and announce message of hope, message of joy. God is here. God is with you. But what I love about 1 Kings chapter 19 is that this is such a personal appearance, such a tender appearance of the angel of the Lord. We have already seen that the angel of the Lord loves single moms. We have already seen that the angel of the Lord loves distressed dads. But here we see that the angel of the Lord loves Depressed believers. Depressed prophets. Even depressed spiritual leaders. Even men of God who have just gone through the spiritual battle and the battle has been so intense they are just at the end of their resources. And in 1 Kings 19, we see that the angel of the Lord shows up to Elijah. Elijah has just won a tremendous spiritual victory. Elijah has just defeated all the prophets of Baal. He has called down fire from heaven. And he has slaughtered all the prophets of Baal. 
And the evil queen Jezebel has heard what Elijah has done, and she has sent Elijah word, Elijah, I am going to kill you. You're a dead man. And we would expect Elijah, the man of God, to rise up against this challenge and say, Who are you, O wicked woman? Who are you if the Lord is for me? Haven't you seen that I have just called down fire from heaven? Haven't you just seen that I have slaughtered all the prophets of Baal? Who are you to threaten the life of a man of God, to stand strong and courageous against this threat? Yet in 1 Kings 19, we see that this, this man of God, we see his humanity, we see his weakness, we see that he is so exhausted by the spiritual battle that he lays down before this threat and he asks that God would take his life. Chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Someone once asked me, Dan, is it possible for a Christian to struggle with depression? Is it possible for a Christian to struggle with depression to the point where he wants to die? And my answer is, look at Elijah. Man of God, prophet of God, spiritual leader, and yet he is so exhausted from the spiritual battle that he just wants God to take his life. He's saying, no more conflict. I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to fight Jezebel anymore. Just, Lord, let me die. Guess who shows up? To Elijah. To encourage him. To sustain him. If you guess the angel of the Lord, you're absolutely correct. Verse 5 says, Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. You know what I love about this angel? This, this person, this angel of the Lord is is. Is he, I mean, he loves single moms who feel that they're alone. He loves distressed fathers. But he knows how to encourage a weak believer. He knows how to encourage a depressed man of God. He knows that sometimes the last thing a depressed believer needs is another lecture, is another pep talk. 
is another sermon, is another list of responsibilities that you need to fulfill. He doesn't come to Elijah and say, Elijah, come on, what's wrong with you? You're a man of God. Live up to who you are. I mean, get out of bed. You know what he does when he shows up to Elijah? There are no words. He doesn't preach to Elijah a sermon. He shows up with a hot meal. He actually cooks the meal himself. And he brings it to Elijah and he says, Elijah, you need to eat. What you need is not another sermon. What you need is not another pep talk. What you need is food. You need to be physically restored. This angel of the Lord, he knows how to encourage depressed believers. And we know that. We know that sometimes when a believer is struggling and when he's weak and when he's downcast and when he just wants to lay down and die, sometimes he just needs physical care. He just needs a hot meal. And it's more than the meal. It's the love behind the meal. It's the care behind the meal. It's it's the concern that says, through this meal, I'm communicating to you the heart of God, that God knows you, brother. God knows who you are, sister. God cares about you, and God has sent me as his messenger that through this meal, God wants to encourage your heart. We have seen that time and time again in our own church. How those practical acts of mercy can restore a depressed believer like Elijah, and he eats this meal, and he travels 40 days and 40 nights because he has met with the angel of the Lord. Who is this person? The angel of the Lord. Who is this messenger of God who is also said to be equal with God? Who is this minister of mercy who loves to show up to single moms, distressed fathers, depressed believers, and to communicate the heart of God and to tell them that God loves you and God knows you and God sees you. When the curtain of the Old Testament ends and the Old Testament reaches its finale, the curtain of the New Testament opens. There's a 400-year intermission in between. But as the curtain falls on the Old Testament era and the curtain opens on the New Testament era, we notice a surprising observation, and that is that the angel of the Lord is seen no more. He disappears from the biblical history. We see him in the book of Genesis appearing to Hagar, to Abraham, and even to Jacob. We see him in the book of Exodus appearing to Moses. We see him in the book of Judges appearing to Manoah and appearing to Gideon. We even see him in in the book of Kings appearing to Elijah. And we see him spoken of even in the prophets in the book of Hosea. But once the Old Testament reaches its finale, the angel of the Lord disappears. And as the gospel records open, We no longer see the angel of the Lord appear to distressed people, but we see an angel of the Lord appear to Mary, the virgin, and announce to her the good news that she will bear a son, and this son's name will be Jesus, 
And Jesus shall be the one who comes and saves us from our sin. Who is this angel of the Lord? Most Bible commentators, Bible teachers agree, and I agree with them, that this angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before his incarnation, before he took on human flesh, before he took on, became a man. This is the second person of the Trinity. And the reasoning is very simple, isn't it? If the angel of the Lord is equal with the Lord, then he is either the Father, or he is the Son, or he is the Holy Spirit. He is one of the persons of the Trinity. And yet it is not characteristic of the Father to appear to man in visible form. And it is not characteristic of the Holy Spirit to appear to man in recognizable form. But it is characteristic of the Son. Jesus Christ. To be sent as a messenger from the Father. To communicate the Father's heart of mercy to those who are in distress and who are in need. And to communicate to them good news of great joy. That God loves you. God sees you. God cares about you. And God is with you. It is my conviction in my heart that the ministry of mercy that we see in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appearing to distressed individuals, is a foretaste, it is a preview, it is a picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Jesus began his ministry by saying in Luke 4 that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ appears in the New Testament in full humanity, in full incarnation, in the glory of the God-man who walked among us. He was the messenger of the Lord. He came from heaven to earth to communicate, not only to single moms, and not only to distressed fathers, and not only to depressed prophets, but to sinners everywhere, no matter where they live. Good news of great joy that God knows who you are and God loves you and God has sent me to communicate a message of mercy that will turn your sorrow into joy, that will turn your mourning into dancing, that will turn your hopelessness into blessing. Jesus is our messenger of the Lord, our minister of mercy. And when Jesus Christ, at the end of his life, went to the cross and was nailed there between two criminals and gave up his life, 
God took all of our sins that we have committed and he placed it on this messenger of the Lord. He took all of the guilt and condemnation that you and I deserve and he placed it on this messenger though he had done no wrong. And he poured out his holy fury and anger upon the messenger of the Lord and satisfied his wrath in full. And the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of our justification, is that not only did God take all of our sins and place it on the messenger of the Lord at the cross, but God took the perfect life that this messenger lived. The perfect life that he lived in his incarnation. He took that life and placed it on us. So that not only does, did he treat Jesus as if he had lived our life, but he treats us as if we have lived his life. And he looks upon us with the same favor and delight and joy and satisfaction that he looked upon the messenger of the Lord. Because his righteousness has been imputed to us at the moment of our conversion. Brothers and sisters of Cornerstone, my simple exhortation, my simple plea with you this morning, my heart's cry for you this morning is, is let us love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us believe in him, trust in him, Rest in him and let us see that he is more beautiful than anything else in our lives. He is more beautiful than wife or children or career or accomplishments or possessions or education. He is better than it all. And because he has found us in our wilderness, our lives have been changed. And our destinies have been transformed. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's table, we recognize that the same angel of the Lord who stopped Abraham's knife from plunging into the body of his son did not stop, did not spare his own life when he went to the cross. So much did he love us that he placed himself on the altar and he allowed himself to be sacrificed on our behalf because he is our messenger of mercy. Let us come to the Lord's table. Let us remember Christ and love Christ. Let us take the bread and the cup with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. Let us stand in awe and wonder at who Jesus is and give him great praise for all that he has done. Would you bow with me in prayer as we prepare hearts for the Lord's table? Our Father, how sweet it is to remember mercy.
to remember the cross, to remember how you found us in our wilderness. You found us in our time of distress. You found us when we were alone and without hope in this world. And you sent Jesus to communicate your heart to us. We rejoice in the messenger you have sent to this earth. We rejoice in the Old Testament appearances. And we especially rejoice in the New Testament appearances of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, slain for the sins of the world. Father, we come and we take the bread and the cup this day with joy. We give to you all the praise for all that Christ has done. We pray this in Christ's name.